Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman and part of his seven-week presentation, Matthew and Luke on Jesus, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is part one of week four, titled Parables, recorded in March 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. There are many ways in which the evangelists teach and show what the kingdom is like. Not just the Beatitudes or the, uh, or the sermons, but also the parables. In fact, we have to remember that the kingdom, if you want to envision the kingdom as a place, it is no place if it is not here. Uh, if we want to envision the kingdom in terms of time, it is, no, it is no time if not now. Which is not to say that the kingdom is only here and now, but this is the only place where we can experience it at present. So what would the kingdom look like? How would we describe the kingdom? To what will we compare it? Those questions are the questions that Jesus answers through the parables. Jesus goes so far as to say, in the parables, you are receiving the secret or the mystery of the kingdom. The essence of what the kingdom is can be experienced through hearing and meditating upon and responding to Jesus' parables. So today we're going to look at some of the parables in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, the unique parables for each of those Gospels. Now again, we have to begin with Mark because Matthew and Luke build their vision of the kingdom upon Mark's vision. And the parables, the idea of Jesus teaching in parables, the idea that the, that the parables reveal the secret of the kingdom to those who are in the know, that comes from Mark. That's a, a central um, teaching of Jesus in Mark that Matthew and Luke develop. So let's begin by talking about the parables in Mark's gospel, which is not that hard because there, there are only really two parables in Mark's gospel. There are some little support parables, but basically there are two. The first one is in chapter 4 of Mark. That's called, often called the parable of the sower. It's a, a story about how uh, a person goes out to sow seed on different kinds of soil and what happens on those different kinds of soil. And then in Mark 12, there is another parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, which is about uh, a vineyard owner who lends out his vineyard to tenants and how the tenants don't want to yield what is the owner's due. The owner sends his son to collect. The tenants kill the son in the hopes of, of seizing the inheritance. Now, what do these two parables have in common? According to Jesus uh, in Mark, they both are commentaries on the action of the narrative, the action of what happens in the story. So Mark 4, the parable of the sower, is a commentary on how Jesus' message is received. The sower sows the word, says Jesus. So he interprets the parable to be about himself delivering the message or any messenger delivering the message of the kingdom, whether it's John the Baptist who is now no longer delivering the message, or whether it is Jesus' 12 apostles whom he has just commissioned 
to deliver the message a couple chapters earlier. The sower is anyone who proclaims the word. The second parable, the parable of the wicked tenants, is again a commentary on the story. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, the vineyard. He is, uh, uh, as in the prophet Malachi, he is attempting to refine the priesthood, to reform uh, the worship of Jerusalem so that it meets the standards of God. And he is being opposed and will eventually be killed for disrupting things. And so the story of the tenants is a, is a, uh, a commentary on that. So in a sense that one of the functions of the parables is to explain the success or failure of the word, the success or failure of the message to be embraced by those who hear it. So it's psychological. It attempts to, to analyze responses to Jesus and his message. We're not going to talk about the parable of the wicked tenants because we'll spare that for when we talk about the temple as a theme in Matthew and Luke. But let's talk a bit more about the parable of the sower so that we can then compare how that parable functions in Mark with what Matthew does with it. So the parable of the sower again, four different kinds of soil representing four different types of responses to the hearing of the word. And Jesus elaborates upon each of these. There is the, the, the seed that falls alongside the way, the way being, I guess, the path that the sower is walking along. But of course, the way is also the center of the plot of these gospels, the way of the Lord. But it falls alongside, the birds eat it up. Jesus says this, uh, this represents those people who, when they hear the word, Satan immediately takes it away. So Satan, uh, some sort of active malevolent antagonist, is trying to thwart uh, those who hear the word. And there are many people in the story who immediately reject or don't even bother to listen to the message. The second type of people, the second type of soil, is the rocky ground. The rocky ground, which since it doesn't have a lot of soil, uh, the the plants spring up, but they can't, uh, they can't come to maturation. They can't grow completely because of the lack of the depth of soil. And uh, the sun comes and withers them. Um, for Mark, uh, the, the, uh, the rocky ground is the twelve, turns out to be the twelve. Uh, I, interestingly, in Mark's gospel, the twelve, the apostles, are not the ideal disciples. In a sense, they're not ideal in any gospel because they have flaws, but... The flaws, as we'll see when we discuss the, uh, the representation of the twelve next week, um, is much more constructive in Matthew and Luke than it is in Mark. Mark's task is destruction. <laughs> uh, so he presents them as those who receive the word gladly, but will eventually fall away when push comes to shove. They are the only characters in Mark's gospel who fit this description. And in fact, the verb to fall away only appears once more in Mark's gospel, and that's when Jesus says to the twelve in the Garden of Gethsemane, you will all fall away. Uh, so interestingly, out of the four types, they are not much better than type one. Of course, at this stage in the narrative, they're still basically, uh, it's still sort of the honeymoon, they're doing quite well. Uh, but when we get to later on in the story, they, they start to go downhill. But uh, that's not our, that, we're not going to talk too much about that today, because that's for next time, the representation of the disciples. Type three people. That's when the seed uh, falls upon the, the thorny soil. There are thorns. The thorns grow up and they choke uh, the, uh, the wheat as it tries to grow. These, say Jesus, are those people 
who, although they hear the word and receive it, um, the cares of the world, the desire of wealth, other things come in, other concerns come in and choke the word. Um, There are some very prominent examples of this in the Gospels. Herod, uh, uh, not Herod the Great, but um, Herod Antipas, the, the ruler of Galilee at the time of Jesus, who uh, who hears John the Baptist's message, but is pressured by other desires, namely the desire to keep his oaths to his, uh, his, uh, uh, his uh, daughter-in-law uh, to do whatever she says, and when she says kill him, he does it for, so that he doesn't uh, be seen to be violating his oaths. Or Pilate, right? Pilate knows what the right thing to do is, but he doesn't do it. He's pressured. He allows himself to be choked. And there are other characters, too, like the rich young man who wants to Uh, inherit eternal life, but can't bear to part with his wealth. He turns away. He's choked. Or when Jesus exorcises um, uh, an entire region uh, of unclean spirits and the people in the region tell him to get lost because they're more concerned with the fact that the collateral damage for this exorcism was several thousand head of swine that they were apparently raising. Uh, So there are various people who, for for different reasons, uh, hear, but they know what the right thing, they know the right response, but they do not follow through. The fourth type of of soil, the good soil, the good earth, as Jesus calls it, uh, that is those who hear the word, they accept it, they embrace it, and they become fruitful, and they produce 20, 30, 100 fold. So the yield of this crop is extravagant, it's supernatural. Now, there are only a couple of characters who actually fit that bill in Mark's gospel too, but we'll leave that to discussing the disciples next time. That's the parable of the sower. How do you respond to hearing the word, to hearing the message that the kingdom has drawn near? What happens with that parable when we get to Matthew's gospel? Matthew preserves that parable pretty much in its entirety, uh, but he supplements it with another parable. He says, now I'll tell you another parable. And it's also a parable about sowing seeds, only now the focus has shifted. It's no longer a person who's just throwing seeds wherever they may fall, in which the, 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 uh, the dynamic of the parable is not the seeds, which are all the same, but the kind of earth that they fall upon. In this new parable that Jesus gives, it's about a farmer sowing one type of seed on one type of land, trying to, 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 uh, to grow a crop, And then at nighttime, an enemy comes and sows weeds uh, in the field, a different type of seed. And then the result is a mixed crop of good and bad. And then uh, the servants of the farmer say, shall we uh, take out the weeds now? He says, no, let them stay, because if you uproot them now, you might uproot the good good, uh, uh, wheat as well. Let's wait until the harvest when when the, the good wheat has been fully established, and then you can rip out the the bad stuff. And um, what happens in the end of this parable, uh, the, when harvest time comes, the, the reapers go and they, they tear out all the, the weeds and they burn them in the fiery furnace. And um, Jesus, in his interpretation of this parable, and he gives a very explicit interpretation, he says, the farmer sowing the seeds is the son of man, namely me. Um, the field is the world. The good seeds are the children of the kingdom. The bad seeds are the children of the evil one. So notice there's only two types of people, not four in this parable. Uh, The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. 
uh, and the, uh, the burning up of these, uh, of these uh, weeds uh, is the, um, the destruction of the wicked, uh, where, he says, in this fiery furnace there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the righteous will shine like the sun. This uh, delightful expression, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's a unique expression of Matthew, and it almost always appears in Matthew's unique parables, the parables that only appear in Matthew's gospel. So this is a parable of not understanding and reacting to the word, but it's a parable of to whom do you belong? Are you, are you seeds of the evil one or seeds of the kingdom? Are you just or are you wicked? It's a parable of judgment like the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew uh, preserves that basic parable of how people respond, but he supplements it with a more central parable for him, which, again, accents the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, connects with it directly, with the language of the sermon and the imagery of the sermon. Now, Matthew divides Jesus' sayings, his teachings, into five major groups or discourse, sort of super discourses, you might call them. The first is the Sermon on the Mount, which we talked about last time. And the other four are all built out of a particular passage and theme from Mark's gospel. So, for example, after the uh, Sermon on the Mount, there is a discourse about uh, how to be an evangelist. Basically, Jesus gives instructions for the Twelve as he sends them out to evangelize Israel. There's a passage from Mark that this is based upon, and Matthew finds everything in his attic that he can that has to do with this theme, and he puts it there. So he builds it into a larger collection of teaching. Next comes the parables. So basing around the, the, uh, the parable of the sower in Mark 4, Matthew develops a very large and expansive discourse of parables. Um, We'll say more about that in a moment as soon as we outline the structure of these discourses. So there's the Sermon on the Mount, instructions to evangelists, parables. Next comes uh, how to be a good leader in the church. It's about leaders and followers in the church uh, in which the 12 are sort of being groomed uh, to learn how to be servant leaders, how to be good leaders. And uh, this, is, this too is based upon some sayings in Mark that have now been very much expanded. Finally, the fifth and final discourse is one about vigilance. You know that everything is about uh, who belongs to the kingdom and who doesn't. We know that everything is about whether we enter the kingdom or not, and we know the criterion of that judgment because we've read the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen Jesus' depiction of the last judgment in Matthew 25, uh, which is the conclusion of this discourse of vigilance. The discourse of vigilance based on Mark 13 is... Uh, the fact that you don't know when the judgment is coming and therefore you must be vigilant. You must be aware of what you're doing now. Right? So vigilance isn't just a timetable. It's not hoping for a future. It's living that future now, being ready for it now, which fits very well into the whole spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. Not all those who call me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom, only those who do the will of my Father. If they don't do it now, I, can't rec- I won't be able to see them. If they don't make me visible, they become invisible to me. So all of these discourses, especially the last one, will accent themes of the Sermon on the Mount. The reason why I mention these five discourses is not because we're going to talk about them today, but because almost all of them 
has a parable that's unique to Matthew's gospel. Specifically, the last three. The parable's discourse, obviously, which has the unique parable we just talked about, the parable of the weeds, the, uh, the discourse about leadership within the church, that has a unique parable of Matthew, and finally, the discourse about vigilance, which has two unique parables. So, in other words, Matthew is not, um, like the sower, randomly throwing parables anywhere in his gospel. He is, for the most part, aligning them with the five core points of Jesus' teaching. So he's using them to reinforce those teachings. Now, there are a few parables in Matthew that are outside these five discourses, and we'll talk about those as well. But I just wanted to to make sure we understood the the framework of these. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the parable discourse. That's Matthew chapter 13. That's where the parable of the weeds occurs. But uh, a couple things about the whole structure of this chapter. It begins again with the parable of the sower from Mark. It builds itself around that Markan story. And then it includes two fulfillment formulas. By fulfillment formulas, I mean when we were talking about the birth and infancy of Jesus, every time something happens, Matthew says this was to fulfill what was written in the prophet X, Isaiah, Jeremiah, whatever it may be. He continues or resumes that practice in talking about the parables. Because in the parables, when Jesus uh, describes the function of the parables, uh, Jesus quotes in Mark, uh, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And so Matthew just can't help but putting this was to fulfill what was written in the prophet Isaiah in between uh, the, the function of the parables and the quotation of Isaiah. He has to put that in there. And he puts another one in there later on. But what is the function of parables? What are parables supposed to do? I've already suggested that they help us see what the kingdom looks like. Uh, but how do they do that? According to Jesus, it's not just that they give us the mystery or the secret of the kingdom, because they also serve to, uh, to exclude and confuse those outside. So the, the parables create a division. They, they're by no means something that is just meant as a useful teaching device to, to get people to understand what Jesus is saying. They are meant to include and exclude, to illuminate and confuse to create a dividing line between the children of the kingdom and the children of the evil one. They keep the outsiders out and the insiders in. They're about who's inside and who's outside, which is to say, although Mark is the one that has this originally, this this fits very nicely with the whole notion of the Beatitudes. Who is in? What sort of people are on the in? It's only those types of people, the uh, the peacemakers, the meek, Uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's only those people who have, by virtue of the way they live, the the, the proper experiences to understand what the parables are actually saying. So the arrogant aren't going to understand the parables because their very mode of life excludes them from understanding. So the parables, in a sense, mark that division between the weeds and the the good seed. what, what does Matthew do with this now? After giving us the parable of the weeds, he then gives us a series of support parables, smaller parables that, again, accentuate this idea of judgment. And uh, the most important one is where Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven. This is verse 47 in chapter 13. He compares the kingdom of heaven to a net thrown into the sea, catching fish of every kind. So in other words, there's good fish and bad fish. The fishermen throw out the bad fish. 
And uh, he says, so it will be at the end of the age, judgment day. The angels will come, just like in the previous parable, separate the evil from the righteous, throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, that favorite expression is repeated there. Now, having said that, you know, having had these, these, uh, th- this refrain about judgment and, uh, and reaping and harvesting and all that, Jesus then asks at the end of this chapter or this discourse, verse 51, have you all understood this? The disciples answer, yes. So having answered yes, Jesus then reveals what they are being trained to become by listening and grappling and trying to understand the parables. He said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been made a disciple for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the parables are meant to form Jesus' disciples. We, we speak of spiritual formation. The parables are meant to form us spiritually into scribes. Now, what's a scribe? A scribe is someone who studies the written word, who learns how to read and write, but who studies uh, especially the wisdom that books contain or that, that sayings contain. The scribe ponders the meaning of things and tries to bring forth a new meaning of his or her own. Um, in our Catholic Bible, there is a wonderful book called Sirach, written by a person named Jesus, uh, or rather recorded by his grandson, the grandson of Jesus ben Sirach. And in a very crucial passage, uh, Sirach says um, that I was, like a, uh, I was like a channel of water um, opening up to the sea. The sea is wisdom. I'm opening my channel up to the sea so that I will, I will bring wisdom anew into the world. Prophecy will again be declared. Insight will again enter the world. This is bringing new treasures out of old. The sea is the primordial wisdom that God has given the human person uh, through their intellect, through their wisdom. And uh, the fu- function of the scribe or the teacher of wisdom is to learn this, to grapple with it, and then to teach others. So in Matthew, just as Jesus is a teacher, Sermon on the Mount, he is forming, through the, through the parables, he is forming teachers. So that at the end of the gospel in chapter 28, he will send them out to teach. But teaching involves wrestling with things. You learn not just by rote memorization, you learn by grappling with the meaning of difficult sayings. And so the parables, even though in these particular parables, he says this means that and this means that, uh, the disciples will still be challenged to think about these things. There will be many parables in the gospel that don't have an obvious meaning and that won't have an explicit interpretation. Uh, and it's the, the, the purpose of the parable to force us to grapple with them. So this is forming disciple teachers. Okay, so that's the parable discourse. What about the next one, the, 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 the discourse about leadership within the church? Well, the significant parable here that is unique to Matthew is about forgiveness. And this is when Peter says, if someone in the church sins against me, how often do I have to forgive? Do as many as seven times? Jesus says, no, forgive them 77 times. And then he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. Uh, so then we have a story about a rich person, a rich um, uh, uh, owner of, of, of much wealth who uh, collects uh, from his servants what they owe him. And one servant uh, can't pay up. He owes his master 10,000 talents, which is about the size of Fort Knox, by the way. 
talents are huge weights of gold. Um, he can't pay up, so he begs for mercy, and the, the king gives him mercy. And so immediately, the servant runs off to find a lesser servant who owes him a hundred denarii, which is like, you know, pocket change. And he, he demands this, and the, the, the lesser servant can't give it to him, and so he beats him up and puts him in jail until he pays it. And as soon as the king hears about this, uh, he says, um, let's get rid of this, uh, this wicked slave because he had no mercy on his fellow slave. He did not make visible my own merciful nature. And since he didn't make me visible, I'm going to make him invisible. He's going to go to that place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, and so, says, uh, says Jesus, my heavenly Father will, do, will also do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So the function of the parable, again, is to show us how to make God visible, God's nature visible. So that's the discourse of leadership. Finally, we move to the fifth and final discourse in Matthew, which is about vigilance. How do you, how do you live vigilantly with a view to final judgment by God? There are two parables that, uh, that are unique to Matthew in this collection, and they precede Jesus' um, story, his, his representation of the last judgment. So they're actually very pertinent to that that fulfillment, in a sense, of what the Sermon on the Mount is pointing towards. The first one, and these are ones we probably know very well, the first one is about uh, the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. Ten of them, or five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. They were going to meet the bridegroom in the wedding hall, uh, and five of them didn't bring enough oil in their lamps, and so they had to go back to the marketplace and buy some more, and when they got back, the door was shut, so they weren't vigilant. And what's significant about it isn't just the theme of you got to be ready, but when they knock on the door and the bridegroom answers, uh, they, they beg him to be let in. They say, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replies, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Exactly the same language that Jesus uses at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Not all those who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, right? And if they don't do what my father asks, they will come to me on that day chapter 25, the last judgment. They'll come to him on that day and I'll say, I never knew you. I don't, I can't see you because you've made yourself invisible to me. And that same refrain, I never knew you, who are you, comes in the last judgment scene as well. So the parable recaptures that central idea, making God visible or we make ourselves invisible to God. Due to time constraints, Today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.